Our Old Testament reading from today, for today, is from the book of Genesis, chapter 1, verses 26 through 27. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Our second reading from today is from the New Testament. Uh, the first book of John, chapter 3, verses 1 through 2. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Word of the Lord. Good morning. Uh, for the past several weeks, we've been talking about community and what it means to be in community and fellowship with each other. Uh, the reality is that we all live in community, every single one of us, unless you go off, go off the grid and only hang out with squirrels. I guess you'd still be in community, but just... But we all exist and live in community every day of our lives. We belong to various groups. We live in different cities, towns, buildings, neighborhoods. Uh, we attend different schools, work different places, the places we eat, spend time. The, um, even the online is, is the mic problem me? Is it me? It's my fault. Do you want me to switch to handheld? Might be a wire thing. Okay. Uh, so we all live in communities. Some communities are good, some are less good. We sometimes choose our communities and sometimes we don't. But you communities. I'm waiting for the go ahead. <laughs> Usually the people in our communities have something in common with us. Um, they may be affinity groups, interests, hobbies, book clubs, sports teams. It could be geography, the towns we live in, the places we, um, the buildings we live in, our neighborhoods. It could also be something totally beyond our control like our family groups, whether uh, we're connected through biology or through marriage or through adoption. There are different reasons we are in the various communities that we're in. So where does church community fit into this picture? And how is it different from the dozens of other communities in our lives? Now, in some ways, church is an affinity group, right? We're all here because we like Jesus. Most of us are here by choice because Jesus is something we care about or are at least curious about. And the reality is that very few adults in the U.S. attend church because they have to or feel like they have to. 
there are always exceptions, but generally speaking, church attendance for adults is a choice. We're here because we choose to be here. There was a time in our culture when people went to church because it was Sunday. There was social pressure to go to church, and whether that was a good thing or a bad thing depends on who you ask. But I would say that the long-term fruit of obligatory church attendance uh, is questionable because at the very least, we can see that it didn't stick across generations. You can spend 30 seconds online and find dozens upon dozens of articles about the drop in church attendance in the United States. So this week, I googled just the two words church attendance with no positive or negative words attached, and I got dozens of headlines you probably, I don't know if you can read those. Third of Americans have quit church as attendance fails to recover. Fewer Americans attending church. Faithless America. <laughs> Losing their religion. Why U.S. churches are on the decline. I mean, on and on. Decline in church attendance. The importance of religion. Lives of Americans is shrinking. So, I mean, whoa. So, it seems like everyone who studies church and religious uh, trends is aware that church attendance has dropped in recent generations. There are tons of people out there trying to figure out why. Now, there's no simple answer to why. It's a complex mix of reasons. And I'm not going to go into all of those reasons right now. And it's important to know why people don't attend church. But it's also important to understand why people do attend church. So why are you here? Is it because it's Sunday? Is it because it's part of your routine? Is it because your spouse or your parent made you come? Were you looking forward to seeing friends? Is it because you thought Garrett was preaching? <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, those might all be reasons, right? Those, those could all be reasons that you're here. But why church? Because we go to book clubs. Uh, we see friends with shared interests. We join online communities to compare notes on various areas of our lives and our work. Uh, we have study groups and like work lunches and all these other ways that we can have community, but church is different. There's something that draws us together as believers in Jesus that is different from any other connection or identity that we have, because as believers, we are family. So church is a lot less like your book club and more like your Thanksgiving at Aunt Susie's. And it's not that you go because you want to listen to your Uncle Ronaldo talk about his antique spoon collection. You go because you're family. And our families aren't perfect, and some of our families are just downright dysfunctional. But there's something about belonging to a family that is different from belonging to the club that you joined. So families are made in a lot of different ways. I already mentioned biology, marriage, adoption. And over the last few decades, social scientists have been talking a lot about families by choice. This is especially true of Gen Z, younger generations, and more like marginalized groups of people, and especially people who are kind of not connected to their biological families for any number of reasons. Um, so these families by choice, they go beyond we all have a, a similar interest, but these are people who actually share life together, sometimes even living together in community. So what this shows us is that there's something about family, about living life together, that we crave as humans. And when we don't have it, we create it. Now, in an ideal world, biological families would be ideal. But we all know that that is not always a reality. But I believe that the desire for that 
is written in our souls. So let's look at the text that Andrew read for us today from Genesis 1. There is a lot to love about the book of Genesis, especially these early chapters. It's incredibly ancient, and it gives us a foundational look at God's relationship with everything. It's a snapshot of who God is, who we are, and why it matters. It's also a snapshot into the ancient world and the ancient mindset. And one of the amazing things about scripture is that every word of it is relevant for us today in 2023, even though it reflects the time and the culture in which it was written thousands of years ago. So in the polytheistic world of the ancient Near East where gods were vengeful and violent and lazy and demanding, this intimate creator God in Genesis is nothing less than shocking. The opening verse of Genesis 1 shows us a God who is actively involved with the creation of the world. Now, how to interpret these verses is a whole different sermon, but it's enough to say that there are certain structures and patterns to the text that are reflective of the ancient Near Eastern way of writing and thinking about gods and rulers. So in the opening verses, we see the Hebrew god Elohim creating certain realms, creating water, sky, land, and then filling them with stars and fish and birds and people, or animals in the first few verses. Then we get to verse 26 and there's a shift. That's when the text changes from God creating, saying let there be, let there be, let there be, to God start talking about what he's going to do next. And he says, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over all this other stuff I just made. That's my paraphrase of the text. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. In his own image, the imago dei, the image of God. It's something that's in our prints, and it's part of who we are as humans. Now, Bible scholars have understood this phrase in a couple of different ways. So in the ancient Near East, the gods created the world for their own entertainment. They were bored or tired of doing their own work, so they created humans to do their work for them. And the humans existed to serve the gods. So the only people ever referred to as being the image of God were pharaohs and kings and rulers. They were like the gods or considered like little gods on earth. And the rest of the people existed to serve them. So the text of Genesis using this phrase that's reserved for pharaohs and kings to describe every person in the world would have been really shocking in its ancient context. Another way of saying it would be that God created mankind to be royalty, to be kings and queens. In the ancient Near East, <clears throat> idols or images were also believed to actually hold the essence of uh, whatever they represented. So the gods actually inhabited their images. So that's, this is why idol worship made sense to them, because these weren't just pictures or statues, they contained the actual spirit of the gods themselves. So when you created the image of the god, the god's spirit would inhabit it. So we have this word image, and um, it's understood in a couple of different ways. So one way it's understood is like an effigy or an idol, so a literal image of something. So that would mean the text is trying to tell us that we physically actually look like God. So there's, a, there's an argument to be made here, especially in light of Jesus in the New Testament, right? We look like Jesus. Um, a second way is some people understand the image of God as reflecting our abilities. We can create and love and think unlike anything else in creation, and we're a reflection of the things that God can do. 
And it's also been understood in terms of representation. We reflect God's role in the world. We rule over all the stuff as ambassadors and our situation reflects God's situation over the world. So I think, I think all of these are true to some degree. But I think the most important thing that we can know about being created in the image of God is what it says about our identity. Being image bearers might tell us who we look like, what we're capable of, and what our responsibilities are, but it also tells us who we are. We are children of the King. We are God's children. And when you're someone's child, whether it's through nature or nurture, you look like them in various ways. You might share their mannerisms, their physical characteristics. You might interact in the, in, with the world in the same way that they do. Being image bearers tells us who we are. We're children of God. Another thing about the text where the, uh, the language shift, and God says, let us make mankind in our image. Now, there's so much to unpack in just this first chapter of Genesis. Again, very ancient text. And I'm just kind of glossing over the high points, but I think this is worth mentioning. Now, there are at least half a dozen different ways that scholars understand this plural, us and our. Um, but I'll give you just some of the most popular interpretations. These are kind of the general understandings. One is that it's polytheism coming through. So the ancient Near Eastern view would say, well, this is, this is polytheistic language. Multiple gods are talking together, and the author of the text lived in this culture, and so his polytheism is showing. It was a mistake, or he just let his bias show through. But there's no doubt from the rest of the book of Genesis that the whole book and the writer is specifically, intentionally, and thoroughly monotheistic, so I reject that theory. <laughs> the second possibility, God is talking to other heavenly beings. So another view is he's talking to angels or other beings in the heavenly realm. So this is possible. Um, some ancient Greek scholars even went so far as to say that the best part of humanity was created by God and the worst parts of humanity they blame on the angels. So I think that takes it a bit too far. But it's possible that God is talking to other created beings in heaven. A third possibility is that God is communal within himself. So some Christian scholars, especially, think that God is talking to the other members of the Trinity here. That in light of the New Testament, that's a reasonable understanding as a Christian. So the author of Genesis would not necessarily have had Jesus and the Holy Spirit in mind, but could have viewed God as communal in nature, that plurality within unity. A fourth possibility is a rhetorical use of the royal we, as in... We are not amused. But there's not a lot of linguistic basis for this. In the ancient Hebrew, that royal we is never really used in this way with a verb. It's never used as in we are going to do something. So toss that. Um, you can keep it if you want. I'm tossing it. Another, the, the, uh, the fifth, fifth argument of what could be going on here is that it's grammatical agreement. So the name of God, Elohim, is a plural word. The word El means God. Elohim is plural word for God. Um, and so God is just talking to himself and being grammatically correct. He is just matching his grammar to his name. Which then, of course, begs the question, why is God's name plural? Which brings me back to theory number three, 
which is that Genesis understands something about the communal nature of our singular God. So we're supposed to read the Old Testament in light of both its original context, but also of the New Testament, which gives us a clear picture of God existing as the Father and as Jesus and as Spirit. So it's reasonable in light of the whole of scripture to interpret the us and our as God referring to himself in a plural nature while being a singular God. So I'm not throwing out the other possibilities. There's biblical basis for God talking with the angels. We see him do that in the book of Job. Uh, it's a possibility. I wasn't there. I can't say exactly what he was doing. But I'm saying that option three makes a lot of sense to me. Which brings us to our second scripture reading from the, New from the book of 1 John. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him, him being Jesus, the son. Dear friends, now we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Now, one thing John is big on is tying Jesus back to Genesis. So in the Gospel of John, you have multiple verses where John's trying to put the reader's mind back in Genesis. It, it opens with the words, in the beginning. It takes you right back to the beginning, echoing the opening of Genesis 1 and placing Jesus at the creation of the world, present with God and the same as God. He was with God and he was God. He was with God in the beginning. So here in 1 John, he's saying something about Jesus, uh, about us. So in, in, he was saying something about Jesus. Now he's saying something about us. Jesus is with God and is God. Who are we? We are children of God by nature of being human. But through new life in Jesus, we become more fully identified with God. Still not made perfect. He says, not until Christ appears and then we shall be like him but we are full of God's spirit now because he dwells in us, his image bearers. So we are children of God. You are a child of God. God created us not to be his servants like the ancients would have believed, but to be his children, his image bearers, so that he can come and dwell in us. And how does God come to dwell in his image bearers? through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which comes through the forgiveness of our sins and salvation through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Whew. That is a lot of churchy words. But we use these very churchy words because these are very churchy concepts. A few weeks ago, uh, Garrett was talking about the word coin the idea of fellowship and how fellowship is this churchy concept and we have to kind of borrow and create language to describe these bigger theological concepts and we end up with church words. And then sometimes, frankly, in our zeal to become accessible to non-church folks, we end up tossing out our church words because they feel like they might be a barrier. And this was something that happened a lot in the uh, seeker-sensitive movement of the late 90s, the early 2000s, which isn't wrong in its intentions. We want to be accessible. But when we throw out church words, we sometimes throw out their theology with them. Which brings me full circle back to why do or don't people go to church? Again, there's no one reason, and I'm not blaming any particular movement because it's very complex. 
But one thing that we do know from talking to younger generations of Christians, the ones who are falling out of, the, uh, out of interest in church, is that they are hungry for the deep meaning of those church words. They desire the deep theology of the faith. They have a million affinity groups at their fingertips. Everything's available to them on the internet, but they wanna be part of something bigger and more real because it's written on their souls. We are built for community, and Christian community is a family. And when I say that, I think this is where language fails us. Because the word family just doesn't cut it somehow, right? It's like, we're a family. It's got a lot of baggage. It doesn't get new life in Christ means being born again. Being born again means being born into a new family. Being children of God means God is our father. We look like God. He cares for us. We are connected to each other as brothers and sisters. And we are heirs of the kingdom. We are princes and princesses who are born to be kings and queens. C.S. Lewis really gets at that imagery. If you've read the Narnia series, he's really kind of pulling that out um, where he talks about the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve who throne and rule as kings and queens. And that's who God says we are. That's what it means to be in the royal family. We are heirs of Christ. Now, our cultural context right now is one of division frankly, polarization in many ways. More and more people are defining themselves and their identities based on the groups to which they belong. We talk about identity politics. We label ourselves in a million different ways. And how we identify has become a really loaded topic on many levels. And people disagree all over the place about what is relevant to our identities and what is not. So I cannot answer all of those questions. But I do know one thing for sure from scripture. And that's that our identity is children of God. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. As children of God, we long for community because community reflects who God is and it reflects the communal nature of our God. And as members of that community, we're reminded that our true identity is God's children. So as children of God, community is part of our identity too. That's not actually optional. We are created to be in community. Our assurance in our identity as image bearers informs how we interact with each other in community and with the world. And that can overwhelming, like, uh-oh, I have to represent God well in everything I do, and that's impossible. But the reality is that you don't actually have to work as hard as you might think. You don't have to work at being a member of your family, right? You just are one. And uh, you don't have to work at looking like your parents, as my kids and my husband will represent. They just look, <laughs> if you've seen them, you just look like your parents, right? You don't have to try. The knowledge that you belong to God, that you are God's child, should free you in community to show the grace to others that God has shown you. It should free you to live not under greater burden to represent God well, but under a greater freedom to live into your true identity as children of God. This side of heaven, we will always struggle with our identity 
and our desire to align with various groups. And there are actually, there are times when that's good and important and you need to do that. Even churches divide based on style and theology and a million different other factors, language. I mean, that's not wrong. Those aren't wrong things to do. In this world, our differences exist and often they're beautiful differences. Even in their complexities, they're beautiful. But above those differences, above every other way we identify ourselves, we are children of God, and we are designed to be in community together as part of God's family. So, I urge you to keep digging into Christian community even when it's hard. To extend grace to your brothers and sisters even when you feel like you have to hold them accountable. Not to neglect meeting together, as scripture says. A concrete thing you can do is join a community group. You can reach out to a brother or sister that you haven't heard from in a while. You can sign up for our meals ministry. You can ask someone to pray with you. Make community with other believers a goal this week. We're about to celebrate communion together, which is the ultimate expression of community with other believers and with God. God, through the giving of his body and blood through Christ Jesus, invites us to be reborn as members of his family. We come to the table together not because we have to, not because we've earned it, but because it's offered freely to us. We don't have to try to be members of the family, we just are. In my church growing up, we had a circular communion rail that went around the altar table and the church would come forward and kneel around the rail. And there was something really beautiful in that symbolism. It's again, it's one of those churchy things that has deep meaning to it. We don't have a communion rail. We do have a communion table. In a few minutes, you will be invited forward to come forward to the table to share the love of God through the sacrifice that Jesus makes for all of us. You are part of the body of Christ. And I hope that as you do that, you will remember that you are children of God. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that you would speak to our hearts right now. We are grateful that you have designed us for community. And we pray that you would bless this community, that you would draw us closer together and closer to you. Show each of us, Lord, how you want us to live and guide us every day in all of our steps, reminding us always that we are your children. In Jesus' name. <clears throat>